Good afternoon to everyone. Uh, my name is Rich, uh, and it's great to be able to lead us through this next part of our meeting together. Uh, at the moment, we are currently working our way through a series uh, that we've entitled Formed in Prayer. Uh, and week on week, we've been taking a line from the Lord's Prayer, uh, the prayer that Jesus teaches us uh, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, and seeing how it gives us a structure and a framework on which to build all of our prayers, and in fact, on which to build a whole life of prayer. We've been seeing every week that prayer is not something for us to endure. It's not something for us to kind of battle through, um, but rather it is a gift for us to embrace uh, and it's a rhythm for us to enjoy both individually and together. It's something as well that is to form us as we pray, that the more we pray, the more we get hold of what it is to pray and the amazing access and privilege that we have in doing that, the more it's gonna shape us, the more it's gonna shape how we relate to God the more it's going to shape how we relate to one another, the more it's going to shape our perspective, the way that we see the world around us, the more it's going to shape our actions, how we live in the world. And so I'm going to start by reading out uh, the whole prayer, and then we're going to go again and zoom in on just one particular line today. And so you'll find it in Matthew chapter 6 uh, from verse 9. It will also come up on the screens behind me. Jesus says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And today we're going to be exploring verse 10 in a little bit more depth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we're going to be looking at that under two particular banners. And so the first one of those is how we are called to be kingdom bearers, kingdom bearers. And the second, how we're called to be kingdom bringers. So that's both those who carry the good news of the kingdom, who bear it to the world around us, and those who have a role to play in helping to bring it about. And so kingdom bearers, those who understand the what of the kingdom, what is it that we're talking about when we're talking about the kingdom? And Jesus is the ultimate kingdom bearer. He's the person who gets what he means when he says kingdom like nobody else has before or since. And so as Jesus begins his ministry, what we find is that he does all this amazing teaching he does all these incredible miracles, but the centerpiece of everything that he's talking about is about the kingdom. His teaching has all these different kinds of aspects wrapped up in it. It's got a moral aspect. It's got a philosophical aspect. It's got a kind of political aspect and an economic aspect, but the center of everything that he's talking about is about the kingdom. And so as he begins his ministry, what we find is that he declares in Mark chapter one that the time has come and the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, that's what Jesus is gonna be about. That's what the whole thing that he's talking about is gonna be about. It's gonna be about the kingdom. And more often than not, when Jesus teaches about the kingdom, he does so through parables and stories. And I think one of the reasons why he does that is because he knows that stories have a way of getting into us much more than just information does. 
And because I think he's tapping into his audience's expectations about the word kingdom in order to point them to a better story and a bigger story. And for us to be kingdom bearers as well, we need to understand that big story in order to understand what we mean when we say the kingdom has come. Because see, that word kingdom is such a loaded word both then and now. I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear the word kingdom, all kinds of different pictures and imagery come to mind. Um, I had thought about kind of getting a whiteboard up and kind of drawing some of the ideas of what comes to mind when I say the word kingdom. For me, it would be something like castles uh, and thrones and banquets and feasts and armies and battles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But then I thought, I'm not very good at drawing, so I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to describe all of that, particularly a dragon. That's a very difficult thing to do. Um, But I think in the same way, Jesus' listeners at the same time had all these kind of ideas wrapped up in their head about what he was talking about when he said kingdom. And the idea of what they would have in their head was the kingdom of Israel. It's the story of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And that's a familiar story for us, even if we've never read the Old Testament, because it's a story that still echoes through popular culture. It's the story of a perfect home marred by a terrible disaster but with a promised saviour who's long foretold and who, despite many setbacks and seeming defeats, somehow manages to win a great victory and usher in a new age and a happy ending for everyone. That's the great story. And it's every story that we see around us. But the problem is that Jesus' followers knew that they were in the midst of that story. They're in that point, the uncomfortable point between waiting for the fulfillment of the promised saviour, waiting for the happy ending, and knowing that they're going through a whole lot of stuff. They've seen the glory of the kingdom of Israel in King David and King Solomon, a wonderful temple where gold was apparently as common as stones on the street. And at the same time, they've seen terrible hardship. They've been carried into slavery, carried into exile in everything that we looked at over the summer in the book of Daniel. And so they've got this longing for something more, for something greater, for a promised Messiah. And that's what God had been speaking to them about through his prophets, that he would send his Messiah, one who would restore the loving, righteous, just, grace-filled rule and reign of God. Someone who would make it on the earth as it is in heaven. Someone who would make it on the earth just as God intended it to be. Someone who would restore all that is broken and make right all that is wrong. That one day, every tear would be wiped away. All oppression would cease. Swords would be beaten into plowshares. The lion would lie down with the lamb, and the knowledge of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's the kingdom. And what Jesus does is he arrives on the scene and he says, it starts with me. The time is at hand. The kingdom has come. It starts right here. The new creation is being birthed in the midst of the old. The story is unfolding in your very midst but it might look different to how you imagined that it would. 
The kingdom's at hand, but it's not about creating a new state. It's not about creating a new territory. It's about creating something far bigger. It's about creating a whole new humanity. And when we're asking the question, what do we mean when we say kingdom? Jesus gives us the simplest definition of what God's kingdom looks like right there in the Lord's Prayer. For his kingdom to come means for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is the loving, grace-filled rule and reign of God coming and working its way into the world in order that the life of heaven might inhabit the life of earth. That the characteristics of heaven where things are as God fully intends them to be might increasingly come to be revealed on the earth. Characteristics like grace, God's unconditional, unmerited love and favor towards us. His peace, his complete wholeness, his complete rest for our restless hearts, the undoing of every sense of brokenness. His comfort, that no matter our circumstances or situations, we can know that every need is met in Jesus. Hope, purpose, and direction when all seems dark and lost. An identity, knowing and enjoying what it is to live as children of God. And that's something that we get a taste of now. That every time we see freedom coming to the captive, healing coming to the sick, peace coming to the restless, joy coming to the weary, justice coming to the downtrodden, belonging coming to the lonely, every time it's a sign from heaven that the promise is true, that the kingdom has come in Jesus and it is coming. It's an example that you can bank on that God has started his work in the world and that he one day will bring it to completion. And that's what the kingdom looks like, but it starts not with the big, but with the small. When Jesus tells some stories to help us to understand what he's talking about when he talks about the kingdom, to get it into us, he doesn't use epic sagas. He doesn't write the Odyssey or the Iliad. He uses everyday stories. Life for most of us doesn't look like castles and thrones and dragons. It looks like normality. It looks like yeast working its way through some dough or a person looking for a lost coin or a small seed being planted and growing into a great tree where all the birds of the air come and roost in its branches. It starts first with God's desire to establish his rule and reign in you, in you. That's why the prayer he gives us starts with those words, our Father. That's why it's always to be our starting point. That before we pray for his kingdom to come in the world, for his loving, grace-filled rule and reign to be worked out in the world, we need to pray for it to be worked out in our lives as well, as our hearts, as we come to God again, as we receive him as Father again one who has a name that is worthy of every praise, worthy of all worship, and yet one we come to with the intimacy of Abba. The Apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his kingdom bearers, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The life that Jesus offers, a life lived in a new kingdom, is the life of a new creation itself. It's everything that we look at as we celebrate baptisms, that those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus, it's like we've moved house from an old country to a new. We have been reconciled to God the Father in Christ the Son through the Holy Spirit, not as isolated individuals on a planet that will one day pass away, but as ambassadors for the work of reconciliation that God is doing in the whole world. So how do we do that? How do we become not just kingdom bearers, but kingdom bringers? To explain that, Jesus teaches us another parable, another story. And this one is all about weeds and wheat. And you can find it in Matthew chapter 13, but the story goes something like this. Uh, It's time for the farmer to plant their seeds. And so a farmer buys good seeds. He buys good wheat, the best the market can offer. And he and his hired hands go out and they plant it in their field. They work hard all day, and at the end of the day, they rest. They've done a good job. They settle down to sleep. But while they're asleep, an enemy comes and sows amongst the good seed, the seed of weeds. They scatter the weeds throughout the soil. And soon, as the two begin to grow together, it becomes clear that although the two look quite similar, there are some big differences between them and that the weeds have spread throughout the field and they've got their roots in deep, deeper even than the wheat has gone. And so the hired hands come back to the farmer and they ask him, what are we to do in this situation? If we try and pull out the weeds, we risk pulling out the wheat as well. And the farmer says to them, leave the two to grow together. Then at harvest time, harvest them all and separate them out. That's the story that Jesus tells. And later, as they sometimes do, the disciples come to him and they ask for an explanation. They haven't quite grasped the whole meaning of what he's saying. And so Jesus explains to them that this is how the kingdom grows. This is what he's talking about. This is what it looks like for them to be kingdom bringers. And he explains, first of all, that he himself is the sower in the story. And in the original Greek, that word sower is written in something called the continuous present tense. It's saying essentially that um, the sowing that took place beforehand, the good seed going into the field, is still taking place. It's still happening. Jesus has sowed and is still sowing. And what he's sowing, the good seed 
is the sons and daughters of the kingdom. It's every believer throughout all the centuries. It's people from every tribe and every nation, people who speak every language and who are part of every culture. It's anyone who has grasped the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and known the seed of the kingdom birthed within them. All of these are sown by Jesus into the field, which is the world. That's what the field is. It's culture, society, it's everywhere. And this is how the kingdom comes. It's a really interesting passage to look at, but it's a passage with tremendous application because what it means is that Jesus has sown us, you and me, into the world. It means that whatever you do and wherever you are, you are sown. School teachers, business people, social workers, stay-at-home mums and dads, health professionals, musicians, dancers, caterers, plumbers, electricians. If you're in work or if you're out of work, if you're on the nine to five or if you're in recovery, if you're taking a break from all of it for a moment, if you're in your home or your street or your office or your shop, or you're following your sports team, Jesus has sown you into that place. He's sown you into the world. Have you ever looked back on your life and wondered to yourself, how did I quite get here? Like you look back on the last few years and you kind of fast forward again and it doesn't all quite make sense. It happens to me quite often. I'll be thinking about the last few years and looking around and wondering, how did I end up in Birmingham? This was never part of the plan. And yet here I am, doing what I'm doing, living where I'm living. And it seems that somehow God has brought it all together. And it's because he's sown me into this place. And he's sown you into your places as well. Sometimes God will sow us into the most unexpected Places. He'll sow us into another nation or another job or another city, but it's because he's placed us there for purpose, to be kingdom bringers in that place. And this is something that we talk about quite a lot at Oasis. It's central to who we are called to be, but it's something that I really believe we need to keep pressing into, keep taking hold of, not as a kind of well-meaning platitude. You know, it's nice to think about. It's kind of reassuring. Uh, It's hashtag Monday motivation on a cold Monday morning. This is central to how God's rule and reign will be made known throughout the whole world. This is what it's about. This is how God is going to bring his kingdom in the world. And that means it's going to be tough at times as well. Psalm 97, uh, verse 11, says this, light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. That's who we're to be. We are to be light sown into the world, but sown into the darkness, sown into the earth. But within that seed, within the seed of the kingdom planted deep within us, seemingly forgotten, perhaps hidden beneath the surface, is everything that we need to grow and produce life. 
And as we give ourselves to the kingdom, to embracing more and more of the life of heaven in our own lives, of enjoying more of that grace, peace, comfort, wholeness, hope, identity, and seeking to offer that to others, the more that seed will begin to grow, the more it will begin to press upwards until it sprouts from the ground, revealing the light that is within, the God flavors and God colors that we each get to reveal in our unique places. Paul says the same thing at the end of his great chapter on what the future is gonna look like in 1 Corinthians 15, verse uh, verse 58. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Our efforts are not in vain. They're not in vain because at the end of our lives, we aren't going to float off up to a disembodied heaven and leave a wicked world behind forever. They're not in vain because Jesus isn't coming back to do away with everything and start over again. They're not in vain because as we increasingly learn what it is to pray, your kingdom come, we will increasingly come to see that we are his instruments in the world, accomplishing something which will become in due course part of his new creation. Why do we spend so long talking about this? Because this is the principle of kingdom work. And we need to root it deeply inside ourselves because on the vast majority of days, it's not gonna feel like kingdom work. It's not gonna feel like light bursting out of the ground. It's gonna feel like frustration and struggle and boredom. That's what most of our days are gonna feel like. It's what most of our prayers will probably feel like as well. And yet Jesus knows this, and that's why he gives us the whole prayer to pray. It's why we come to Father. It's why we come to a name worthy of worship. It's why we come knowing that we have been made right and knowing that we're sent out. It's a prayer he gives us in order that we might be sustained and encouraged and formed and shaped. And it's why he gives us this story as well, because it shapes a few applications that I just wanna look at in our last part of our time together about how we are to pray in light of all of this and how therefore as well we are to live. And those are in terms of people, perspective, patience, and purpose. And so first of all, people. Uh, As part of my degree, um, some of what I looked at uh, was how political pollsters kind of get the temperature of the nation in the lead up to an election. And so the kind of questions they ask people to try and work out the issues that matter and how people are going to vote and whether they're going to vote at all and all that kind of stuff. And one of the key questions that they ask, one of the key metrics they use to track things over time is this question. Do you think the country is on the right track or the wrong track? In other words, are things getting better or are things getting worse? And I don't know about you, but I find that quite a difficult question to answer because I can look around and see incredible things happening, incredible progress, technological progress, medical progress. We can do things now that past generations could only 
dream of. But at the same time, we look around and see horrors in the world around us. We see things like the shootings again in America yesterday. We see increasing division and inequality in our society, increasing challenges in terms of mental and emotional health. And the answer seems to be yes and no. Things seem to be getting better and getting worse all at the same time. But Jesus says we are to expect that. That's what this parable is all about. The kingdom is always growing, but evil is always growing as well, just like the weeds grow with the wheat. We are to expect to hear good news stories, to see fruit, to be encouraged as the kingdom goes out into the world. But we are also to expect to see increasing problems in society, increasing challenges and pressures rising up. But caught in the middle of all of that is people. And so when we come to pray, the challenge can be that we pray for a concept or a theory. We pray for God to end poverty generally or oppression generally. And that's not a bad prayer to pray. It's a good prayer to pray. But God's heart is always for the people caught up in the systems around us. We are sown into the world in order that we might come into contact with others in the world so that we can hold out the life of the kingdom to them. And so that when we pray, your kingdom come, we get the immense privilege of bringing them before the Father and saying, Lord, would you move and Lord, would you act in their lives and in our lives. We are to be deeply involved with the world with the good and the bad, and for it to drive us to pray for people, to come before God and lay before him the people he has surrounded us with. Secondly, we are to pray with a renewed perspective. Because yes, things are gonna be tough. Yes, evil is gonna seem to grow, but one day, God will set everything to rights. One day, the life of heaven will fully inhabit the life of earth. It's the picture we see in Revelation 21 and 22, not a disembodied cloud, but a physical world without mourning or sickness or crying or pain, where God is at last fully with his people, where his rule and reign is made complete and it's seen in grace and love and healing and wholeness. We're to see the darkness around us, but not to despair, because this is our perspective as we pray, knowing that as we pray, your kingdom come. We are praying for that Revelation 21, 22 future to be brought into the present. That's what we get to do when we pray with perspective. Tom Wright puts it like this. Every act of love gratitude and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every act of care and nature or comfort and support for one's fellow human beings or for one's fellow non-human creatures, and of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed which spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, 
and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation which God will one day make. That's what we are to be about. Or as another bearded, wise man, Russell Crowe, puts it in the film Gladiator, what we do in life echoes in eternity. We are to pray with an eternal perspective. Thirdly, uh, this story encourages us to pray with patience. Uh, This year, uh, we celebrated the 150th anniversary of this building, uh, 149 years of which Oasis Church had absolutely zero input to whatsoever. But 150 years ago, a bunch of people got together and they sowed something into the world that today we get the amazing privilege of enjoying the fruits of in the place that we get to call home. The kingdom grows like a seed. It's much, much slower than we would often like. The culture all around us is obsessed by speed. Everything is quicker, everything is faster, everything is bigger, everything is better. It's instant impact, fast food. We wanna see results now. What Jesus gives us is stories about seeds growing day by day, inch by inch, working their way through the ground. It's a radically countercultural message that we are called to be those who build something that we most likely will never see the full good of, that we will never see the true fruit of. That's what it's to be like in our prayer lives. The assurance is the results are coming. The encouragement from every moment we see where the life of heaven invades the life of earth, every amazing story we hear of healing and salvation and freedom coming, all of those are tastes of that Revelation 21, 22 future breaking into the present. And God loves to do that. He loves to do it. And so we'll keep praying for it and we'll keep enjoying seeing it when it comes. But we're also to pray, remembering that more often than not, the growth of the kingdom will take a long, long, long time. But we are to keep going, keep seeking, keep praying, because God is building something with much more depth and strength than we can ever know. Finally, we are to pray with purpose. Dallas Willard, who's just a a brilliant author and theologian, writes this. When Jesus directs us to pray, thy kingdom come, he directs us to pray for his kingdom to take over at all points in the personal, social, and political order where it is now excluded. With this prayer, we are invoking it, as in faith we are acting it into the real world of our daily existence. And what that means is that even as we are praying, God is wanting to work in us that we might be part of the answer to our prayer. God loves to work through people. 
I don't know if you noticed that last week when Adrian was sharing about the story of Moses and the burning bush in Exodus 3. God speaks to Moses and he uses all these kind of I statements. I, I, I. He says, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I have heard them crying out. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them. And the very next thing he says in verse 10 is, so now go, I am sending you. I am sending you. And when Moses asks, who is he to do all of those things? God's reply is, I will be with you. I will be with you. He will be with us. It's not that we are the answer. It's not that we are everything. It's that God is wanting to work in us, that we might be part of something that he is building together. Our prayers are to be big prayers. We're not to come to God with plans and solutions already in place that we just want him to action and implement instead of us. Praying for God's kingdom to come means that we're praying by definition, for something which is outside of our power to do. It is his kingdom. It relies entirely and only on him. But it means we get to pray with purpose, knowing that if God has stirred a passion in our hearts to pray, it's more than likely that he has given us a part to play in bringing that about, even if that's just as simple as the words that we're saying and the prayers that we're praying. And if he calls us to that, then we can know the assurance that he is with us no matter what. And so where does all of that leave us? It leaves us coming again to see the beauty of this kingdom, a kingdom which is a gift from God to us, long promised, long awaited, inaugurated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alive in you and in me, present and active and growing in the world through ordinary faith and ordinary acts, which will one day come to fulfillment as the life of heaven fully inhabits the earth and God's loving, grace-filled rule and reign is made complete in everything, everywhere, all the time. And that's what we mean when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why don't we stand together just to finish? Um, Keith, I wonder if we could just have the, um, the whole prayer back up again. That'd be all right. I'd love us to finish just by praying the whole prayer again together. That as we pray it, we can do it knowing all of that stuff, that who we are to be as those who bear the kingdom, who bear and carry the good news to a world so desperately in need of it, those who get to stand in the gap and ask God, would you move, would you act? And at the same time, we get to be those who he has appointed as his ambassadors, his kingdom bringers in the world with a part to play in bringing the new creation in the midst of the old. And so we pray together, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.